Understood, understood. So let me introduce you. We're here with Sahan Savas Karatalsi. Am I pronouncing it right? That's right. Okay, great. And he's an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Would you like to add anything to that? No, that's great. Okay, wonderful. I'm so excited for this conversation today. So we are going to talk about 21st century revolutions. And you've written that since the turn of the 20th century, we've been experiencing a rapid intensification of revolutionary situations, that the closest analog to this period would be the, the years from 1915 to 1919. Perhaps we could start by talking about the similarities between these two periods. Oh, yes. I mean, I think this is a very important observation um, because it's true that we have been living in a very unusual period of world history. I mean, even if you look at the news today, uh, you can see like protests in Iran, France, Australia, uh, Hong Kong. If you look at the in 2019, uh, we read all of these protests in Puerto Rico, Catalonia, Chile, Bolivia, Colombia. But this is not new. I mean, since 2010, 11 onwards, we have been seeing this. We have been talking about the Occupy movements, the Arab Spring, the anti-austerity movements, uh, labor unrest in Asia. We have we have seen in 2013, 14 and onwards, a protest in Brazil, Turkey, Catalonia. We have started to observe some civil wars in Ukraine, Syria, Yemen, Libya. Now, if you think about them, if you take them as a whole and think about um, are we really seeing an um, unusual intensification of social unrest and compare it with the previous moments in world history, you can clearly see that we are living in a very unusual period. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have been actually at the RE Center uh, for Global Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We have been analyzing this using newspaper reports from um, early 19th century to present. Um, and we, we can see actually that today is quite unusual. And in the last two centuries, the, the analogous moment can be really the early 20th century. It was also the base of uh, these global waves of uh, revolts and revolutions. And it's not only that the movements and their frequency and the geographical spread are comparable, but also the, the, the conjuncture is similar, meaning the conditions we are living in are similar. If you think about the early 20th century and the early 21st century, what you will see is, well, we are living in a, a period of crisis, but different forms of crisis, they're all linked to each other. For instance, we are living in a period of systemic economic crisis on a world scale. So this was the same in uh, early 20th century. It became more obvious after 1929 uh, general depression. And actually, since 2007, 8, we are living in an analogous period, in a, in, a, in a similar period. But this is also not only a period of intense economic crisis, but also uh, a, a geopolitical crisis meaning we have been observing uh, intensification of wars, interstate rivalries, authoritarianism is coming back. We have been seeing the intergreat power rivalry. So the great powers are rivaling with each other in a more in, in different ways. So that's also similar to the early 20th century. Actually, that's more similar to the late 19th century, but these are similar moments. And also, this is a period of, I think, we can call it as a social crisis, meaning people are 
not happy with their governments, not happy with their economic conditions, not happy with the world that they are living in. And they are looking for alternatives to solve their problems. That was the same in the early 19th century and, I mean, early 20th century, and that's the same in the early 21st century. And when they look at the alternatives, it provides uh, structural opportunities uh, not only for the global left, but also for the global right because these are, they are, they are providing different kinds of alternative features, but uh, they're pro- providing different kinds of solutions. But when you think about that, uh, you can see lots of similarities in terms of the global rights. Also, the, in recent years, probably in, in the 2011-12, in those years, uh, maybe we were more talking about social movements and revolutions, but today mm-hmm. we talk about more the populism, right-wing movements, authoritarianism, etc. But we have to understand this is also a symptom of the intensification of social unrest from below. It means that the state elites and the leaders, they are losing their consent-building capacities. So they, they cannot rule as, as they used to rule before. So they are also trying to come up with different ways to hold their societies together, uh, etc. So in that way also, this is similar to the early 20th century. So actually in different ways, when you compare, these are quite analogous moments, but of course not identical. There are key differences between these two moments uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, well, that's great. And that's, that's what I want to talk about now, because you, you point out in your, in your work that while these social movements have been successful in changing the conversation, in opening up spaces, even in some examples of overthrowing authoritarian governments, by and large, as a whole, these movements have been much less successful than the social movements of the late 19th century and early 20th century. So what's what's the difference here? Well, there are lots of differences. Um, so it's not only one thing. Mm-hmm. But first, again, we have to um, we have to understand the key difference. The key difference that we have been seeing right now is the outcomes. I mean, it's true that we are living in a truly revolutionary period. I mean, it's a revolutionary situation, but it's not producing revolutionary outcomes, meaning uh, most of these movements that we have been observing since 2011 are failing. I mean, they have temporary successes here and there, temporary victories here and there, uh, but they do not succeed if you look at their initial demands or grievances. They, are, they want emancipation, maybe more democracy, or maybe they want uh, a better economic future. But these movements are failing to provide these outcomes. So, again, what, what, what is the difference between the early 20th century and the early 21st century? There are lots of things that are different, but I think one of the key differences is that the, the political articulations and the, and the way that we assume we can change the societies today are different from how people imagined they can change the world in the early 20th century. Today, I think the notion of revolutionary organizations, elites, or solidarity, I mean, people talk about these kind of things, but organizationally and ideologically, they remain weak. One of the key problems is, for instance, people actually, in terms of the social movements, they are very successful in occupying spaces, Uh, they are changing the subject, but they they don't have a clear answer uh, to the question of, okay, what should we do next? So what is the next step? So there is not an answer to that. And actually, it's not that they don't have an answer what to do next. Uh, Many of these movements all over the world are not even interested in articulating an answer to that. 
it's because ideally what they want is they want to tell their grievances and they want someone to come and solve these problems. But of course, when they when when they cannot solve the problems themselves, usually the, these problems are solved in the way that they do not want. So mm-hmm. that's why if they overthrow the governments, another authoritarian leader is coming. And this is actually not coincidental because in the early 20th century, the movements were successful, spectacularly successful in the short run, but they were they failed to fulfill their promises in the long run. And actually, the movements that we see today, they emerge as a reaction to the previous tradition. Mm-hmm. So that's why they are trying to reject some of the heritages, the ideological, the organizational forms offered by them. And this is some of them is healthy because actually some of these things should be actually rejected. But also together with everything else, one of the things that they reject is a clear articulation about what to do next. How can we solve this? What shall we do to solve these problems? And I think this is one of the key problems. I mean, even if you look at late 19th century, early 20th century, there were, on the one hand, you have all of these utopian socialists, like utopians, they are trying to come up with different forms of utopia projects about what to do. And there are people who are criticizing them, saying that, oh, we cannot do utopias, we need to actually change the world with what we have. But then they are, uh, they want to take state power, etc. Today, we don't have these kind of options and people are not most of these movements are not interested in these options that's why what we see is they are spectacularly successful in producing these revolutionary moments but they they are failing in finding particular uh, certain solutions to their problems because they are not clear about what to do next there's not an articulation about uh, these problems that's one of the one of the uh, key differences between these two centuries. Just so I could clear it up for myself, are you saying that the problem is that people were scared off by Lenin? And so rather than take state power because we don't want to, we don't want to be Bolsheviks, people in fact have endless protests with I mean, are we talking about the form of organization? Is it like anarchist versus Marxist and horizontal versus vertical organization? Or is it just simply that people haven't sat down and figured out what solutions exist? I think think it's slightly more complex than that. I think um, it's more complex than that. I think if we talk uh, in more social scientific terms, this is the debate between the uh, uh, what we call as the voluntarism and spontaneity. And actually, I think maybe to better understand what happened, we can look at to understand it. We can look at the early 20th century, those moments, I mean, how they became successful. But to understand the early 20th century, we have to look at the old 19th century because there was a struggle in the course of the 19th century. And And the moments in the long 19th century, they were trying to solve a particular problem because then they were looking at the French Revolution of um, 1789, 1792 period. And they were worried about, they were thinking, they were concerned about why this revolution failed. And for them, the French Revolution also failed. And they wanted to have French revolutions of different kinds all over the world or, or in Europe at the time. And they didn't know what to do with next. So and then the first solution these movements actually found is is to said, OK, we need to get stronger organizationally. 
So, and then this is what we call voluntarism. Mm -hmm. Voluntarism means they said, okay, we need to do revolutions like the French Revolution. We can do it all. We need the strong organizations. And uh, if you look at, and these were not, I mean, uh, there were lots of different kinds of these organizations. I mean, it's the Carbonari style organizations. They were formed by, like, in the French Revolution, there was a figure called Babeuf, and then they had their followers like Bonarotti and Blanqui, mm -hmm. etc. Anarchists were also volunteers at the time, and the socialists were also volunteers at the mm -hmm. time. So when you have volunteers organizations, it meant this. They believed, they didn't take into consideration the objective conditions. Mm -hmm. So meaning they were not interested in mass movements. They were not interested in if there were certain labor protests or peasant unrest or there was an economic crisis or there was a particular conjuncture. They were not interested in these questions. They were more conspiratorial organizations and they knew the date of their insurrection actually months in advance. They knew they were, they were saying, oh, we will, we will, we, we need state power. And this is the day we are going to do it. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to do it. And they were also failing. After the, actually, the failure of 1848 waves of revolutions, they, some of these organizations start to change their strategy. And here the Marxists have been very influential because then they said, well, we cannot simply do it by voluntarist organizations because if you look, actually, there are certain objective conditions of these revolutions. You cannot simply do it by free will. You cannot simply do it when you have an organization and when you have organizational strength. This is not going to produce your revolution. There needs to be some objective conditions. I mean, there must be a crisis people must be supporting it, they should be having grievances, etc. And at the time, what they were doing in the second half of the 19th century, and this is the heritage that produced the early 20th century, they tried to find the balance between spontaneity and voluntarism. Mm -hmm. And here spontaneity means, even if there are no uh, the voluntaristic organizations, if there, there, there are no revolutionary organizations as such, people will create revolutionary situations. I mean, because actually peasants, workers, like they're all of these different people, when they have grievances, when they have their problems, if no one is providing solutions for them, when, it, when these things are not bearable anymore, they go to the streets, they go and they try to do something. So this is the spontaneous movements. And it, it occurs, I mean, it doesn't occur spontaneously in the sense that, of course, like these people, they are agents of their own movements, but they are not guided by any leader uh, in terms of any organization, etc. It happens by itself. It happens, it's a sociological phenomena. And we can study this, actually, the sociological phenomena. It's a product of some of the objective conditions as well, like the crisis that we have been talking about. Now, what happened is this combination of in the late uh, 19th century, some of these organizations found the interesting uh, synthesis of this voluntarism and spontaneity. Mm -hmm. uh, here it meant this. So it didn't say they didn't say uh, we don't need the organizations anymore. We don't need uh, revolutionary organizations anymore. But they said, uh, well, what is the role of the revolutionary organizations will be? And actually, Marx and Engels already in the in their manifesto, in the Communist Manifesto, they had an answer to that. They were saying the role of these organizations should be to point out, to bring to front, and to represent the global and long-term interests of these movements against the local, national, and short-term interests of each groups. You need someone, you need an organization to to point out, bring to front, and represent the big picture here. 
in these movements. And mm-hmm. so it was not these organizations, they were not meant to lead these masses in the sense that they were not giving directions to them, we will be doing this or that. that. They were not simply recruiting them for their own organization, but they were a part in these organizations, the broader mass groups. And they were trying to explain, they were trying to defend the totality of these movements, interests and demands. For instance, I mean, maybe it's easier to understand um, when we look at today, when we look at the different movements today, we can see all kinds of movements. We see environmentalists, the planet is in danger. We see movements against, say, authoritarianism, against police brutality. We see movements against austerity regimes, anti-austerity movements. We see movements against unemployment. We see pro-democracy movements. We see different kinds of labor strikes, peasant movements, indigenous movements all Mm -hmm. over the world. Mm -hmm. We see national self-determination movements. Now, there are all these kinds of movements. And Mm -hmm. when we say 2009, for instance, was an exceptional year, we can see all these different kinds of movements. But each of these movements, actually, they have their own grievances and demands, but they do not necessarily know other movements grievances or demands, or maybe they know, but they do not see how their movement and these other movements are actually linked to each other, how they are connected to each other, how uh, the emancipation of each group requires the emancipation of other groups, because how these problems, thus the solutions are interlinked, they do not see. So in the 19th century, in the mid-19th century, this was what the Marx and Engels, uh, they were trying to point out. They were saying, well, someone needs to show the global and the, and the long-term picture. And that's why they said, oh, we need these kind of organizations. Now, and this actually strategy in different ways became quite successful in the early 20th century. But then in the course of the 20th century, mm-hmm. the synthesis broke down. So instead of the synthesis of voluntarism and and spontaneity, you had a different form of voluntarism at the time. Actually, that was the mistakes done by the 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 the, the, uh, the socialist and communist organizations of the time. And this was what this was what the new left in our age after the 1968 onwards they were rejecting. Mm-hmm. Now, but when they rejected this tradition, so this is. Uh, it, it will have influence to us. When they rejected this tradition, they rejected the whole voluntarist tradition. Yeah. So not only the bad voluntarist tradition, the weak voluntarist tradition, but all of it. So what we had left today is just spontaneity. Spontaneity, and this is actually not bad, because spontaneity is good, because this is where the creative energies of, uh, of the people is coming from. Mm-hmm. Because you cannot create these kind of movements by will. You cannot, none of these organizations, none of these political organizations can create them. I mean, sociology, this is so strong, it's so creative, it's so productive, but it has its own limitation. What's the limitation? Then you have these movements, but no one has answers, or they don't, I mean, you don't have answers that can be really answers to these problems, and there is no actor that can take responsibility, and this is the problem because they look at the history of the uh, what happened in the 20th century, and they say, well, uh, uh, that that went bad, and we don't want to do it again. So that's the kind of the stalemate. Yeah. And that's, we have this kind of thing. We are living in a truly revolutionary uh, situationary moment where we see lots of revolutionary situations, but they're not creating any revolutionary outcomes. Yeah, so, so we sort of the pendulum has swung way too far to the spontaneity side, and, and we've got to re- regain some of that that balance that Marx and Engels were talking about 
in the middle of the 19th century. And in that sense, the failure of these revolutions are, are not failures of the people who are taking the streets. Like the masses are doing their part. It's uh, it's that the, the left organizations don't exist or they exist, but they're not. The analysis is not there and the coordination is not there and the guidance is not there. So two big questions for you. First, what is the right analysis? Did Marx and Engels have it right not just with regard to finding that middle ground between voluntarism and spontaneity, but also their analysis of, of what was wrong in the world? That's the first question, and we can start there. And then I'll just tell you what the second question is in, in advance, is what institutions can we point to now that could be the institutions that take the lead? Now, I think the first one is the, the, the what is the right analysis. So I think this is not this cannot be answered in a scientific way. Huh? This is something. I mean, if you look at, for instance, in the in the mid 19th century to to early 20th century, like diff, there were different kinds of analysis, there were different kinds of solutions, and they were experimenting on different models. So you do not know which one is right until one of them is right. Mm -hmm. they, they manage to do what they say they do. So it's difficult to know these things in advance, in abstract, theoretically. Hmm? But, um, but, but actually, uh, what is interesting is, if you look at the question, we talked about uh, what happened in the 19th century, and I was telling the story of how the movements in the 19th century, they were preoccupied with the French Revolution and how it failed. Hmm? And they were trying to find a solution to that. And actually, that's why our moment is one can we can see it as a similar moment. So first, we need to say, well, we are living in an exceptional period, but then we need to say, are we winning? And if the question is no, we don't seem to be winning. So in a way, we don't seem to be finding a solution to our problems, and things are not going to go well. So then we we should talk about okay, mm -hmm. so what's going wrong here? And I think here I think when we look at what is missing is I think there is an element of truth in what Marx and Engels was talking about because Marx and Engels, if you look if you read their their work not only in the manifesto but in in terms of um, their analysis of how capitalism operates, they are actually they they kind of tell you that capitalism has a systemic logic, it creates crises and it creates opportunities for workers, etc. But interestingly, if you read it, they're not saying that these uh, opportunities are going to create a revolutionary situation and revolutions by themselves. That's why they, they know that there is a limitation in all of these moments. Marx and Engels, they were mainly talking about workers and the proletariat. But today we can expand it in our in our age. We can think about this all kinds of social movements uh, that that are on the streets right now. All kinds of progressive social movements, pro democracy movements, environmentalists, and the labor movements, and as as a as a whole. When you think about that, so what is the the limitation? And then. Marx and Engels' intervention to the situation is that, well, you need a political actor to, to show the interlinks and interrelationships between all of these movements and to point out and bring to front and to represent the global and long-term interests. And there is no one is capable of doing it right now. So mm -hmm. that's one of the problems. This will be one of the first, linking to your second question, one of the first thing is to 
to start thinking about what does it mean? What kind of a political actor can do this? And actually, we need to now we are in a better position than Marx and Engels to to evaluate this problem because we also have the experience of the positive and negative experience of the 20th century. So we know the kind of uh, things we should try to do and the things that we should try to avoid. So, uh, so we are in a better position to articulate an answer to this problem. But I think... Um, so far, uh, if, we, if we look at, uh, if we think about the institutional models, now there is another problem we have to deal with. So uh, this question of organizations is usually we discuss it under the context of internationalism and the concept of the internationals. So this is what actually, even in, for Marx and Engels and uh, from Ombuds, uh, when they talk about, okay, what kind of political actor we need, they were talking about what kind of international we need. That was the kind of the problem, because at the end of the day, the, all of these problems are global problems. Even the local ones are actually, they can be solved only at the global level, because all of these movements that are taking place in different parts of the world, they are, they are actually linked to each other in quite different ways. Even if they are not aware of these linkages, they are linked to each other. So, but the problem is, in the history of the global left, when people talk about international um, we usually uh, count them as the first international, the second international, the third and the fourth and the fifth, etc. Mm -hmm. These are not the same kind of organizations. They are very different kinds of organizations. They are completely different organizational models. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you think about the first international, first international was it was the it contained trade unions, it contained socialists. Marx was there, but the anarchists were also there. And when you compare, uh, so it was a very heterogeneous group. They, they, they invited nationalists, Mazzini and their followers there. So uh, at the time, because there was um, the nationalism was also in terms of the national liberation movements, 1848, the spring of nations, they were also a major actor. So they invited them. So uh, it was an extremely heterogeneous group. And if you look at their model, it was not a vertically organized international, at least not in the way that we understand today. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it was as horizontal as these organizations could be in the context of the 19th century. So it was a horizontal organization, more or less. But if you compare it with the Third International, it was completely different. I mean, the Third International was not a heterogeneous organization, but an uh, extreme homogeneous one. So, and they had like very strict conditions. They called the 21 conditions to enter, uh, etc. And it was extremely ideologically uh, homogeneous, and it was vertical. So they had a. Um, it was it was a different kind of thing. And most of these internationals, the other ones, they had they swing back and forth between these two extreme ends. They tried to go back and forth. Which one shall we do? Now, actually, I think um, if we think about these today, and if we ask, okay, which one, what kind of an organization we need, I think we need to realize that we don't need one, but we need at least two organizations. I mean, not two, I mean, probably more than two, but at least two of them. And uh, one of them should be as horizontal as possible. And these are, we are talking at the global scale. Huh? So this one of them should be, we can think as the first international as an example, it should include any kind of progressive movement. 
and it, it must, I mean, it, it should, in, uh, in a way, it should include any kind of progressive democracy force, any kind of associations of workers, peasants, ethnic and racial minorities, environmentalists must be there, oppressed genders and sexualities must be there, the individuals must be there, and progressive political parties must be there, the feminists should be there, and also the organizations that are organizing at the global, uh, national or local level. So this should be as horizontal less possible but if you are as if you are willing to organize and bring together in coordination all of these groups then you cannot simply say oh this can be ideological homogeneous it's impossible and you shouldn't do that they should be ideologically as heterogeneous as possible so the idea with this first institution should be to bring all of these movements into contact with each other, into coordination with each other. So they should learn from each other, they should learn from their experience, they should learn their grievances, they should discuss what they need to do, etc. And they should not come together simply at the so they should come together at different levels, um, at the local level, or in each cities, in each neighborhood, but also in each country, they need to get together, and then uh, at the global level. So this is a very, so instead of, you can think of it as a very, uh, a movement of movements, a very complex network of movements, and the idea of this, the idea should be, we should bring in coordination to all progressive forces together and without any ideological constraints. So anyone who are willing to expand the solidarity network, if they are not antagonistic to the solidarity network, they can be in. Mm -hmm. So you can now simply say, oh, to be in here, you need to do this, 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 but if you don't defend these, these ideas, because the idea is everyone should know their grievances, their problems, but will not be necessarily aware of or will not necessarily defend other people's problems. But in, in addition to this, you need a second institution as well. And I think this should be organized as a uh, something like a growth party. And this should be for those people in these movements who, in addition to their these particularistic movements and their grievances and demands, if they also believe that all of these movements, these movements of movements, all of their grievances and all of their problems are linked to each other. And thus, their solutions must be linked to each other. And then, we, we need, if, if there are people who say, oh, we will, we are willing to talk about this common solutions, common problems, and we will uh, take part in these movements in order to point out, bring to front, and represent this global and long-term picture without simply taking these movements under our command without simply recruiting them, but just informing them by pointing out these global and long-term interests, they should organize themselves under a growth party. And, and by definition, this should be homogeneous. But of course, this, this is where the, the difficulty emerges because what is the kind of the homogeneity, how it will be created? Now, this is why when I say at least two of them, because ideally people will not be in agreement in what to do next. So there should be different organizations, different, different models, different parties who believe of what is right and what's wrong. And I think it's a good thing that we, you have that, uh, you have that multitude. I mean, if you look at the experience of the, the, the revolutions in the early 19th century, 
there are, you can see the spectrum of uh, parties as well. There are different ideas what to do. And eventually, uh, maybe one of them will be right, but you don't know. So you need to provide a space for them. But what I'm trying to point out here is these different organizational models that the global left experimented, the horizontalist and the verticalist, the heterogeneous and the homogeneous forms, they are not coincidental because actually these movements need both of them, but for different purposes. So their purposes should not be conflated. I think one of the things that went wrong in the 20th century is that people lost this idea. So they, didn't, they no longer believe that uh, you need both of them. And they believe that only one of them, only the party mm-hmm. can do. And that was the problem. And that was the voluntarist, a new voluntarist move, which, which the new left rejected today. Please remember to go to our website, acorrectionpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes. And please go to iTunes to give us a rating. It helps other people find A Correction. Finally, please don't hesitate to let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future.